Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point on the podcast. What is the real cost of closing down schools? It won't be to crush the virus, but as one doctor tells us, it will actually crush kids' lives in the long run. We talked to him. It's being called one of the worst intelligence compromises ever in this country's history, and it involves a charged RCMP officer who didn't just undermine our country, but our Five Eye partners. We'll talk to Sam Cooper about that. And for those who really want to follow the Australia path to crushing COVID, are you willing to give up all your civil liberties and lock down for four months? We'll talk about that. Let's go. What's your point? You just don't ever get to point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening. Stay home. There is no confusion here. Stay home. It's very simple. Stay home. Stay home. That's it. You must. I'm going to repeat that. Stay home. It's the law. We stay à la maison. It's very, very simple. Stay home. Stay home. I don't know what more I can describe. I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand and one. Be responsible. The message is simple. Stay home. I made a significant error in judgment. Did you stay home? Or were you using your judgment? Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, January 14th. And I don't know what it is about that song, but oh, if you'd seen me in my little den. Got a little pep in my step. That was kind of fun. But this is also, of course, known as the uh, day one of our half-ass lockdown measures that we will be in forever. Day one of staying home. And that, of course, uh, tone of that awful sound was what we kind of had to wake up to be reminded to stay home. I think a lot of people did stay home because you look at the rush hour traffic, um, not so much a rush. There's still an awful lot of confusion, questions, you know, who can do what. And I'm going to be speaking to a doctor in Australia who will uh, give a reality check on what we would have to do to get out of this. Because a lot of people say, let's just do what Australia did. Well, if you want to do what Australia did, they gave up four months of their lives in severe lockdowns. They did not leave for four months. You couldn't go five kilometers past your house. And they agreed to give up their civil liberties. And so it was a grueling grind. But, you know, they're going to concerts now. They're going to rugby matches right now. They're going to the beach. Are you willing to go that far? So we will get that blunt truth uh, in the nine o'clock hour because it gives real clarity. But, you know, it's a tough time for the lockdowns. And where I sit in my office, I kind of just gaze out the window to the back area. And it's just cold and it's gray and it gets really dark so early. So I think uh, for a lot of folks, it's a, it's a hard time to be locked down and then isolated. And I don't go out. I rarely go out because I'm a homebody for one thing. But um trying to do my part. You know, I go get my groceries once a week. But I did go to the dentist today. Haven't been able to do that. It was actually like the most exciting thing I've done in months. But it has been a year. I didn't realize how long it had been. I'd been putting it off and off and off. Hard to get an appointment for a while. But I just couldn't put it off any longer because I've been having a lot of pain in my teeth. You know, like every time I chew something. And it turns out I've been grinding my teeth so hard at night that I created a hole in the back of my tooth. And so every time I chew something, it was like a bolt of lightning went through my head. But um, it's all fixed up. And now I can chew. 
But the grinding is from stress. And, the, you know, the days are hectic. I know it looks like, you know, in radio, you know, you only work for a couple of hours a day. Like you sit in front of the mic and it's like, oh, hey, I'm just going to talk. <laughs> no, that is a fantasy. The hours are so long in this business for all of us. It's certainly the teams in the background. Um, you know, you stew in COVID all day long. All I do is marinate in COVID numbers, COVID deaths, COVID losses, COVID restrictions, COVID, 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 job loss, job loss, job loss, COVID, COVID. It's Trump, Trump, Trump. So that's what you kind of stew in watching press conferences and all the rest of it. And so when I go to bed, I guess I'm grinding my teeth for the stress. And apparently I'm not alone because the dentist said, yep, there is a lot of teeth grinding going on. So there you go. Um but I got a lot of, I've got a lot to chew on today. We're going to chew on the vaccine rollout that's kind of uh, more akin to the stumble. And I think we just have to start facing the reality. We, we have a supply issue. It does not meet the demand, obviously. We get these big headlines about purchases, but really you have to read the fine print. Because the numbers sound amazing, but we are only 1% vaccinated. We are so far back behind a lot of other countries. And we are not going to actually see real movement on this until late spring. So we've got a very long, slow road of, I think, restrictions and a lot of prolonged pain. And then the uh, threat of not getting herd immunity in time. So there's also that. But not everyone's suffering under these restrictions. Oh, no, 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 no. And this is, this is what should have all of us grinding our teeth. And it's this revelation that Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei princess, who is, of course, facing extradition, but doing so, of course, while living in her large multiple BC man, ma mansions, you know. So while the Michaels are tortured 24-7, she's living the lap of luxury. And now we learn that over the Christmas holidays, the Trudeau government gave her husband and kids travel exemptions to come visit her. Isn't that sweet of them? I mean, really, right? So right now, she's already trying to have her marshmallow bail conditions made softer. And we learned from court documents that while her family's been here, they had a private party at a restaurant. She was out doing these private shopping excursions. She's got art teachers coming into her home. Masseuse comes in to visit the house. These are all violations of the COVID rules, by the way. And her family's still there. And her, argu her husband argued in court, hoping to help her get these you know, conditions loosened up a little bit. She needs softer restrictions because he's very concerned she could get COVID. And I'm like, I got a remedy, dude. Shut her in the house and lock her up. Stay home. Exactly. She could be the poster child of stay home. You know? So there. There's nothing safer than putting Meng Wanzhou in her house and locking her down. Problem solved. But I don't know why she gets special treatment. I do not know why this woman gets such special treatment. She's not a Canadian citizen, not even a landed immigrant. And given the brutality and unfair treatment of the Michaels, the bullying and screwing over our canola farmers and their genocidal treatment of over a million Muslim Uyghurs, someone in government decided, let's, uh, let's make some exceptions, make it easier for her and get her family here. <laughs> and meanwhile... Yeah, we've got, you know, millions of Canadians stuck all over the world who can't come home, and they're not getting exemptions. The two Michaels have never been given special treatment. Apparently, all they got was a phone call out of this, if that, because, of course, that's what China's telling us. I don't believe anything that comes out of China.
And this is not a matter of some bureaucrat rubber stamping a paperwork. You know, this is this is one of those cases that would have had and did go into the prime minister's office. It's not the kind of case that just gets passed through. It is such a highly sensitive case. So it would have had to go to the upper echelons. And I'd love to know who thought that it was a good idea or that Canadians would be at all okay with this or that it wouldn't come out, you know, you got to wonder. I mean, she deserves nothing. We have been way too generous to her. And if anything, I think the Trudeau government should have used this opportunity to actually negotiate something for the Michaels. Or, I don't know, show China that they've got one ounce of testicles. I don't understand this. Show China you're not scared. But someone needs to answer who, who okayed this and why. Because the strategy of kissing ass hasn't worked with China. They just get nuttier by the day. And I think it's just such a thumb in the eye to these two men and their families. And really, I think to Canadians who have made very, very clear, you just look at the polling. It's not even a, it's not even a question. Canadians want us to get tough with China. We're sick of the way they treat us, and we know that they're dangerous. And now there are calls, of course, for Canada to boycott uh, the Beijing Games in 2022. And I get it. It would be very unfair and, and tough for the athletes who train. But this is no brainer to me. I'm sorry. No Western nation, no Five Eye partner in my eyes should be going to the Beijing Games. You got to send the message. At some point, you've got to stand up. And frankly, it's a, I, would, I think it would be a danger given their treatment of, um, you know, Hong Kong protesters, these new draconian laws that came in. I mean, you know, I would, I couldn't go there because I've criticized them a lot. I mean, they watch what we say about them. So if I were over there or a Canadian over there, I wouldn't feel safe at all. But I do think that it should be boycotted. Well, there's a lot of debate on school closures and if it is the right decision and the way to go. And, of course, right now in Ontario, the experts have decided that despite relatively few cases and no actual spread in schools, that kids are going to stay online until at least February t uh, 10th, although I suspect that'll last longer. And the popular and now widely accepted narrative is that this is safer because it'll protect kids from the virus and it will stop the spread, except there is the other side of this story which is that schools were not driving spread, and long-term, kids of all ages are going to fall behind and uh, start to suffer real issues, like mental health issues, which we're already seeing. And there's a study out of the United States which looked into the health harm to kids in U.S. schools, and it suggests that school closures last spring will cost U.S. children 13.8 million life years, which, if you put into context, uh, estimates about 88,000 241 COVID deaths in the U.S. during that period will cost 1.5 million life years. Let us get someone who can explain what that means and those numbers. Miko Pakalin is an associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo, and he joins us now. Good to have you, Professor. Thanks, Alex. All right. Explain to me what you mean when we put those numbers into context. So what is the cost to life, if we're looking at it that way, um, of a school closure in the spring in the U.S. What is the study saying to us? Right. So the 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 the, the study builds on this uh, well-known fact, which is that uh, which is that uh, schooling uh, is very important to health. Right. Uh, so so we've we've seen across uh, uh, across uh, many many countries and over time we've seen that uh, 
uh, the more education you have, uh, the longer you live, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and we've also seen studies that show that even small disruptions to education uh, have long, long-lasting uh, health impacts, right? Now, we don't exactly know why education is so important uh, for, for uh, long-term health. Uh, one, one important fact is that when you're in school, you learn good, good uh, 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 health habits, right? you live healthier lives. Uh, uh, through the habits that you have, and also when you're in, the more you're in school, the better jobs you get, and therefore you have more resources in life, and those resources uh, help you live longer, right? And so the study just uses uses that well-known association between um, uh, schooling and life expectancy, and ca- calculates the cost uh, from the school closures last spring, right? And mm-hmm. my 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 point in this piece is basically that, that uh, in, in Ontario, uh, we've, we've, never, we've never been given an estimate by the government uh, about the cost of these, uh, these school closures in terms of uh, 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 the expected life expectancy of, our, of, our, of the children of uh, Ontario, right? So we, we, right. we make these policy, policies as if closing schools is a safe choice, uh, but it's not because it, it's causing immense health harm to these children. Right. And, and, and as you well know, there's a lot of politics when it comes to Ontario and schooling. And certainly a part of that uh, and the closures will be because of politics when you get the unions and you get several special interest groups who push for this. And I think it's widely believed. And I actually have a listener named Yvonne who points to the fact that, um, you know, most think that closing schools is a safer choice. And then even points to times in histories like war times when kids were suffering much more um, volatility and, and didn't have school back then. If they could do it, then the kids today should be able to, to suffer a few weeks online. What would you say to a listener like that as to why it is so detrimental to the health of kids uh, of just having these interruptions? And, and we're into, what, our second lockdown and a few months of lost education. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, what kind of a life that your, uh, your listener is uh, living, right? So um, uh, first of all, we, we know that the, the impact uh, in terms of learning is much more severe to kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, right? Right. Uh, they, they can't comp- they, they don't have the resources uh, or, and, and maybe even the ability to, uh, to, to compensate for, uh, uh, for the loss in, uh, in schooling, right? And, uh, and other, other children are, uh, in, um, don't suffer just from, uh, from uh, learning loss. Uh, but they also suffer from uh, pos- uh, from uh, bad nutrition if they if they don't go to school, and uh, uh, from an increase uh, re- increased risk of uh, abuse and uh, maltreatment, right? Um, and uh, so that's what I would I would to your to your listener I would I would I would ask her to think about the kids from uh, especially from disadvantaged backgrounds. Even if it, this is three weeks, it's mm-hmm. very very bad for them. For many of them, and secondly, I, w- I would I would I would remind your listener that uh, this was first supposed to last one week, then three weeks, then what five weeks, and it's it's so the other point I make in this piece that I wrote is that uh, the uh, opening of schools is not automatic, right? So we've, we've for example, seen uh, Quebec went a different way. Um, they're not in a worse position than Ontario. They chose to keep the schools open, uh, so they had different uh, different. Uh, Possibly different political pressures. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what, what's explaining it. And also in, in the U.S., 
uh, we've seen uh, different states go a different direction. Right? Texas and Florida have had their schools open since the fall. In California, they've had their uh, uh, they've had uh, most of the kids miss schooling uh, soon for uh, for a full year. Right? Mm-hmm. So opening of schools is not automatic. It just depends on what we do as parents. Right? Do we do we basically uh, gently and with compassion ask our government government to uh, to take these costs, uh, 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 these health costs to our children into account when they make these decisions, right? Um, and when, when when do you suspect, though, that we will start, start seeing um, the spinoff effects of, of kids? And it'll obviously differ from elementary kids to high school kids. But, you know, obviously in the aftermath, we're going to do the studies on this. And there are a growing number of um, doctors and, and people like yourself starting to come forward to say, look, there is an absolute cost to not having our kids in school. But when do you think we'll start to see the damage in the data? So the, those those learning losses we saw basically immediately in, in the spring, and there are a lot of studies in the fall saying the exact same thing, that the, the remote schooling just by and large does not work very well, especially uh, for, for the disadvantaged children, right? Mm-hmm. And there are also a lot, a lot of studies uh, on, um, on, on increases in, uh, in, uh, in basically mental health problems uh, uh, among young kids. Right, so, so the, we've seen a lot. We've, we're seeing a lot of those impacts uh, right now, but of course, uh, a, a big problem here is that the the the, the uh, those those impacts on life expectancy they're not going to come. Uh, most of those impacts aren't going to come this year or next year, or even even five years from now, but uh, but further into the future. And that's why it's so hard for uh, for us to count them right now. And that that's one important reason why. Why, why we don't take them into account. But we can still estimate them, and we, we, can, uh, we can take our best estimates into account uh, if we choose to do it uh, when, we, when we design these, uh, these, these policies right now. Yeah, I might remind those who uh, were around during the war. I mean, that generation after the war uh, turned into a lot of heavy drinking uh, for that generation, or at least in my family. But nonetheless, yes, there are long-ranging consequences that uh, I think you're right, we won't see for some time. Interesting report, interesting numbers, and I appreciate you joining us to break it down. No, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. That is uh, Professor Macklin with uh, the University of Waterloo who studies the economics. And look, we're hearing more and more and more of these reports. I know that the popular narrative is that we've got to close the schools to keep the kids safe, but... Um, that's just one side of the story. There is another side of the story. It's just you have to weigh what's more important. Our global news investigative team has uncovered details involving that RCMP officer accused of being a mole and who's now charged with selling secrets to kingpin money uh, laundering that helps fund terror, drug trafficking, and fuels organized crime. It's a hell of a story. It's a very complex story. And the RCMP officer's named Cameron Ortez. And this story reveals how he undermined our Five Eye partners who wanted to work with Canada so that they could target a Pakistani national living here in the Toronto area who was suspected of moving billions of dollars around the world through Toronto and Montreal that was then used to fund terror groups like Hezbollah and is said to have helped kill hundreds of thousands of people. And one of the revelations Sam Cooper dug up is that while the RCMP were gathering evidence for our Five Eye partners, including 81 cash drops between Montreal and Toronto between 2015 and 2016, it was Ortez who allegedly said uh, was apparently protecting 
the accused and not helping our allies. So he was running interference and tipping off the targets. It is said to be one of the worst intelligence compromises ever in this country. And the guy who dug it all up, of course, as I said, Sam Cooper of our Global News investigative team. Hell of a story, Sam. Very complex story I did no justice to in setting it up. But uh, his name is Atlaf Kanani, a Pakistani national who ran numerous financial businesses uh, all over the world. And he's essentially the American Drug Enforcement Agency was really eager to get this guy. And this was also the first time our Five Eye partners wanted to share classified intelligence to target this guy and brought in the RCMP. And they didn't realize at that point that there was an enemy within. That's right. And uh, one correction, he is a global money laundering target. He was based in Pakistan, but he was using, allegedly, a number of currency trader shops in Canada, especially in North Toronto. So the complexity is really, uh, to boil it down, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration uh, believed, and they've learned through years of hard work, that at the high end of global supercriminals, there's just a handful of, of people that can move over $10 billion per year, and uh, mm-hmm. they, they do it for international drug cartels and terrorist organizations because that, at that level, uh, it really is working hand in glove, the money laundering, the organized crime and the terrorism. And so you're right that you cannot imagine, you know, uh, allegations of a, a worse compromise, really. If you think we've talked before, Alex, how Canada, I think, has the or had the image of itself as an upright country. And yet mm-hmm. all this money laundering is occurring in cities in Vancouver and Toronto. How could that be? How could it be that bad? What this story found out is that this high-level RCMP intelligence official allegedly was trying to profit from the worst money laundering, one of the worst money laundering operations in the world. And so the story gets into the fact that, yes, one of these Toronto currency traders was, was trailed 81 times going from the Toronto and Montreal, picking up 1 million cash per trip. This is laundering money for drug cartels, and that money gets uh, filtered back to Dubai and wired to wherever the drug cartels want it, wants it. And Ortis allegedly was uh, playing along with this and meanwhile collecting these very sensitive plans and trying to sell them. It's crazy because Canada is getting this terrible reputation, as you, as you point out, uh, for being easy to money laundering, but we're also becoming a major funding source for organizations like Hezbollah, and a lot of this money was going to fund terror like that, which turns around and then is used to uh, kill people or bomb uh, Israel, whatever. Um, and the Five Eyes really drilled down into this ring of currency trading in, in Toronto, uh, believing that all this money was being laundered and then transferred, you know, through, you know, Iran, uh, Dubai, as you say. Um, but it is used by these evil regimes to avoid uh, sanctions. And, and to think that an RCMP intelligence officer would undermine that, allegedly, because he's now charged, is really quite astonishing, if not gross. When I uh, when I found these allegations, I was literally blown away. And in my in my job, really, what I'm I'm paid to do is dig and find these uh, you know these allegations of corruption. And the more I think about this case, you really cannot imagine a worse case of corruption. And and we should yeah. say we've reached out to Mr. Ortis's lawyer a number of times with no response, and the allegations haven't been proven. What what we can say is this case seems to be just sitting there in Ottawa and not moving forward. And I can Mm -hmm. tell you, Alex, that it's very clear to me that uh, 
the RCMP, I believe. And, you know, Canada, Canada's justice system probably would, would like this case to go away, of course. They don't want details to come out. A little bit on uh, our reporting, we had to talk to sources around the world. And you can imagine that the American officials that, mm-hmm. that are trying to work with Canada are very unhappy with Canada uh, and the nature of this compromise. And, and really, uh, we've talked before about, again, how, how can real estate prices be exploding in some areas of Vancouver and Toronto? And I mm-hmm. think I'm only, only starting to understand, you know, how connected that is to uh, regimes uh, in other parts of the world, such as Iran, that are working with organized crime. Yeah, it's really it's really so sophisticated and so hard to explain. And, and, and really, you have to read the story very carefully because you get into great detail about all this money going around the world. But really, it's fueling not just, um, you know, state terror, uh, sponsored state, uh, state terror like a Hezbollah, but it is fueling all the drugs that are killing people in the opiate crisis, heroin trafficking. It's dealing with the, the worst of the worst regimes. And really, as I understand from your story, our job at, at playing in the Canadian role was just to simply give this guy bags of money to move around. And in, and what was happening is that, that this RCMP officer was allegedly undermining that and tipping him off that that was happening. Uh, that That's when I talked to my U.S. sources, absolutely. The United States and Australia did the heavy lifting in this investigation. And as a matter of fact, my information is the United States was coming to Ottawa for years and trying to get the RCMP to go after this growing presence of Hezbollah operatives in Canada. Canada seemed very uh, unwilling for whatever reason. Maybe uh, our laws make it harder to go after very high-level crime. But finally, the RCMP did jump on this case, and, and that's it exactly. Mr. Ortiz was working to undermine it, allegedly. And the RCMP was warned by several officers within um, who were talking about this officer uh, harassing them or that there were red flags around him, and the RCMP seemingly ignored it. But this is, as you state in your article, the worst intelligence compromise we've seen in this country. The damage, I have to think, that has been done to our relationship with the Five Eye partners, uh, is it... Uh, how how great is the damage? And add to that that we have a government that still hasn't even said, uh, you know, no to Huawei. And so uh, Canada is not looking very good or serious when it comes uh, to protecting our allies or working with our allies. The question of the damage, uh, of course, I go to different sources in different countries to get opinions. I would it, it's very fair to say that the, the damage is deep. It's an open question. Uh, can Canada really, you know, recover its relationship in the five eyes? Uh, some people say that, you know, of course, the moles occur. Uh, these mm-hmm. cases come up everywhere. There's a long history of in the, in the United States of some very high-level moles. But uh, in this case, the RCMP isn't racking up a good record in terms of getting international uh, cases to stick. And uh, this case, it looks like the the RCP tried to punch above their weight and they got burned by uh, allegedly really a con man. An unbelievable, stunning piece. And it's much, much more detailed in what you write. Great job digging. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks for keeping them on us. Sam, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Alex.
We hear a lot from people that we should just follow Australia, Australia's lead in fighting COVID. Um, and the island state has done a perfect job basically getting almost zero cases and returning to normal life. The question is, can we? Because you've got to remember, Australia is an island state, so it doesn't have the border challenges that we do. But the really big reason that Australia got to almost zero cases is because they've done everything we have not. Aggressive tracing and testing, bans to travel. It went really hard on lockdown measures. And the big thing is that everyone agreed to give up their civil liberties. And that's why we started seeing images over here of, you know, police entering homes unannounced or people being pulled from their cars if they failed to wear a mask. So you have to ask yourself the question, are we willing to give up all our freedoms? Because those are the kinds of draconian measures that are needed if we want to go the route of Australia. Nancy Baxter is an MHPhD, head of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. She joins us now. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. What's it like living without COVID? It, it's pretty amazing when, when you see <laughs> the, the rest of the world and their concerns. And, um, you know, we become very concerned when there are one or two cases. Uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, it's like you're in an alternate universe. Yeah. Well, we're in the universe right now where we're starting yet another lockdown, uh, not hard like uh, Australia. You guys did the world's longest lockdown. It was four months, had very strict curfews, and basically everyone in Australia agreed that civil liberties would go out out the door to the point where even walking your dog on your street uh, could get you arrested. Uh, what was it about that that Australians were quick to walk away from those those kinds of liberties? Because I'm not sure that people here would do that. I, I think it's important to clarify: no one was arrested for walking their dog. Um, that just didn't happen in Australia. Uh, we were allowed one one hour of exercise, and you could do that with your dog. That that you weren't going to be arrested for that. Uh, I, I I think that it, it's a bit overblown in terms of what happened in Australia. The interpretation um, certainly there were rules, and uh, Australians follow rules, and they, and and they were enforced. Um, but uh, no one was arrested for walking their dog. That was in one of the reports I read. But certainly we did see images of people getting arrested, um, you know, people having the, the ability to go into someone's home without a warrant if they thought there was overcrowding. But characterize, if you will, what the lockdown was like in order to get out of this thing. Well, I just want to set a bit of a stage. So Australia went into a hard lockdown initially uh, when the pandemic started, when it first came into Australia. And that was Australia-wide. Um, and I think somewhat similar to the lockdown in um in Ontario and got things under control. And as we were starting to open up, what happened was there was a a breach in the quarantine hotel in um, Melbourne. Uh, And so we had a second wave in Melbourne um, that happened Mm -hmm. in June, July. So the cases took off. Everywhere else in Australia, things were under control. So suddenly the only state with a problem was Victoria, where Melbourne was, and it was um, essentially the government's fault. So I think what happened, it was different different motivation here in Victoria than in Ontario, is there was clear political responsibility uh, and accountability for the outbreak. So that meant there had to be clear and decisive 
political action. So that's what happened. Because, you know, if the epidemic had been allowed to um, to go totally out of control, um, Melbourne and Victoria would have been a pariah in Australia for the until the vaccine came. And mm-hmm. um, and that would have been directly the responsibility of the Dan Andrews government. So they they were forced to do things and forced to act very decisively, which, you know, because just the pandemic's a pandemic and what can we do? It's out of control. I think there are a lot of excuses for the government in Ontario right now. Yeah, I mean, one of the big frustrations, and I and I get the sense that the politicians, and I, and I don't pr- pretend to, to think that they're not under un- incredible circumstances, very stressful. They're not going to win either which way. They're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. But it's almost like they're trying to ride the fence to not kind of anger one side to another. But the reality is uh, we're in a lockdown, but I can still go to the store. I can still go out for a run. I can still, if I want, go to the park. It's a lockdown with what m- most see as a, a a lot of loopholes and so where there are loopholes there are people that will break them and and, you know and that's where we get the case spread yeah well it also makes it very very difficult for people to enforce the rules when you know i looked and there are 29 exceptions for um for like uh, for the rules and how do you interpret that how how do you remember that how how do you clearly message that um so you know i I definitely think that governments are in a very very tough spot Uh, but what you can learn from from the rest of the world is when you take half measures towards lockdown all you do you're ineffective in terms of implementation of those measures, in terms of controlling, fully controlling the epidemic. So it just prolongs everything. So it prolongs everyone's uh, misery. Now, now don't get me wrong. It, it, it can prevent things from getting so out of control that, you know, your hospitals end up like, mm-hmm. like the NHS in the UK, but it, it doesn't really control the pandemic. So, so the choice that, in my mind, the choice that politicians need to make is are you willing, do you have the, the, the fortitude to, to go hard for a short period, a shorter period of time, uh, and to control the epidemic? Or do you just kind of have this never-ending, never-ending restrictions until hopefully the vaccine comes out? And, you know, the other problem is you don't really see um, the, the approach to vaccination, uh, you know, hasn't been... E- e- an Israeli approach. So you, you could right. understand if we were just kind of doing half measures and 29 exceptions to to the lockdown measures if we had a vaccine program like Israel where 20% of people mm-hmm. have already been vaccinated. But instead you have this poorly implemented uh, vaccine program without, you know, enough vaccine actually to, to mm-hmm. really kind of vaccinate everyone who needs to be vaccinated uh, and half measures in terms of lockdown. In part, the lockdown... You know, I, th- I think a Band-Aid analogy is is um, is reasonable. Like, you know, you can slowly take it off and have uh, a lot of discomfort over, you know, a long period of time. Or you can rip the Band-Aid off and get the, you know, have, have everyone have to have pretty severe measures. And, and let me tell you, I was a single person alone in Melbourne um, mm-hmm. for about 10 weeks. The only person I saw was the person that, that, that sent, gave me deliveries, like right. 10 weeks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so and I think that's added to a bit of the fatigue here is that we just keep going kind of halfway, halfway, halfway. It solves right. nothing, and then we have to start again. And I think that's where people get very, very frustrated. Now that now that you guys are pretty much out of it, you do have threats of cases coming in. The psychology of people, um, do they feel pretty good there now, or are people still really ultra-cautious? Because I think you're into vaccinations now, but again, it's not going to be as swift as uh, uh, Israel. Um, but do people feel pretty good, or has there been an aftershock of, 
of, of real mental health uh, issues? So there are definitely mental health issues, but I think people have a lot of confidence right now in their governments, that their governments are doing the right thing, uh, and that, um, you know, what we've done, the sacrifices we made, actually made a difference. So in Victoria, which again is very different than the rest of Australia in terms of how long we were in lockdown, um, the rest of Australia was not. We were in lockdown. Uh, but, you know, what we did had an impact and you can see the impact. We went from having over 700 cases a day, and, and this is in, in a place that's, you know, maybe a third the size of Ontario, so about 700 mm-hmm. cases a day, uh, to having zero cases a day. We had a period of 60 days where we had zero locally acquired yeah. cases. Um, and, and, and that was because of the sacrifices we all made. So I think that there's a collective pride in Victoria that we did this. We did this. And, and in, in fact, that's, that's partly why Australia is doing so well, that, that the Victorians actually did what they call here the hard yards and, um, and controlled the epidemic, because otherwise it, it would have leaked out into the rest of Australia and, and it would have been a much bigger disaster in Australia. Yes, well, there is something to be envied, and we're um, glad that you are, uh, you know, on the way to freedom, and hopefully it'll stay that way. But boy, we're uh, really in the thick of it with three to four thousand cases, and it's just getting worse. And so I think, uh, yeah, food, food yeah, for thought. I, 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 um, yeah, and and uh, you know, I, I I think that just remembering that that we will get out of this, um, and that there is there is better. There are better times in the future. This is going to be a pretty dark time, but there are better times in the future is really important. But, you know, having 29 reasons why you can leave your home um, just is not sensible. In, in, in Victoria, at, at the, with the most stringent, when the most stringent um, uh, rules were in place, you know, there was a curfew between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. You weren't mm-hmm. allowed to go out and you weren't allowed to travel more than five kilometers from your home for, for right. any reason. So exercising or going shopping uh, and you were stopped. And if you were more than mm-hmm. five kilometers from your home, from your residence, you were given a fine. And so that wasn't people going to their cottage. You weren't allowed to go back and forth, you know, from downtown Toronto to your cottage. Uh, you know, you stayed in your cottage or you stayed downtown. But for 10 weeks, right. you didn't go back and forth. Um, you know, so what they did was they restricted travel and they restricted it to the point that they could enforce it. Like how, how, how are 29 uh, reasons to go out and about uh, enforceable for anyone? Yeah, no, we, we've pretty much done everything wrong, um, in, including allowing a lot of travel to continue with people going on trips to Bahamas and all over the place and uh, border issues and all sorts of stuff. And uh, the more I hear you talk, the more I realize, holy crap, we are going backwards and backwards fast. So maybe someone will hear your wisdom and, uh, you know, see what we can do. I appreciate you weighing into this. We'll, um, we'll give you a call again. Yeah, thank you very much. And you know what? Um, stay safe. And honestly, uh, yeah, I have lots of family in Ontario. I have a 90-year-old mother in a senior's residence. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I've been watching this with, with horror. Uh, it, yeah. And I, I truly, truly hope that you're all vaccinated very quickly and that things turn around. That is the, uh, that is the goal and the prayer and the hope. Doctor, thank you, and I hope your mom's well. Yeah, thank you. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday, 6.30 sharp, here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.